Lecture 10, The Psychology of Skill Learning. Okay, so the question that we're going to address today is how do we go from being a complete novice at a skill to getting pretty automated so that you can actually perform other tasks at the same time? That's skill acquisition. And today we're going to talk about how we do that. Now, one standard way that psychologists think about skill acquisition is as converting explicit declarative knowledge into implicit procedural knowledge. How do we go from knowing that to knowing how? Just because you can talk about how to do it, that doesn't mean you can actually do it. Somehow, you need to convert the declarative knowledge into a procedural skill that you can actually execute. And that obviously takes practice and time. Consider someone who's just starting to learn to play the piano. And imagine you teach them how to play a D major scale. Now, the very first time they do it, they're going to be pretty slow, right? But the second time they do it, they'll probably be a little bit faster. And after about a week of practice, they'll be a lot faster. Now, obviously, they're not going to be a skilled pianist after just one week of practice. But what they will be is dramatically better than they were on day one. In fact, they will likely never improve that much in a one-week period again for as long as they live. And that's true for any complex skill. It could be the violin, or tennis, or golf, or juggling. The most dramatic improvements will be made in the first few days and weeks of practice. Now, if you continue to practice, then you'll still continue to improve you'll still get faster at playing that musical scale, and you'll get more consistent with your tennis serve or at hitting a golf ball. But the rate of your improvement will slow down. That is, when you're practicing a complex skill, you'll improve a lot initially, but it gets harder and harder to get better as you get more and more skilled. And I suspect you've had this experience yourself when you're trying to learn a new instrument or a new sport, and you're really working at it. The first month or two, you're improving really, really fast, right? And maybe after a few years, you get reasonably good at it. But then, it really takes some work to get better, right? It's like you reach a plateau. To improve anymore really takes a lot of practice. Well, that's what's called the power law of practice. A power law is a specific kind of mathematical function that has a particular shape. Specifically, it's the function y equals a constant divided by x raised to some power. For example, y equals 1 over x follows a power law. So does y equals 3 divided by x cubed, and so on. A constant divided by x raised to some power. Now, think about what the power law function y equals 1 over x actually looks like if you were drawing it as a curve on a two-dimensional graph, with x on the horizontal axis and y on the vertical axis. When x is small, changes in x lead to big changes in y. For example, when you go from x equals 1 to x equals 2, 
the value of y gets cut in half from 1 to 1 half. But when x is large, the same change in x leads to a very small change in y. For example, if x changes from 100 to 101, then y only changes by about 1%, from 1 over 100 to 1 over 101. So, for small values of x, there's a big change in the function's value, but as x gets bigger, there are smaller and smaller changes. And that's the characteristic pattern psychologists have observed when people are learning new skills. Their performance changes a lot initially, but then it kind of plateaus, and it takes more and more practice to make even small improvements. For example, imagine that the vertical axis, y, is how long it takes you to play a D major scale on the piano. And imagine the horizontal x-axis is how many days you've been practicing. Well, the first few days of practice lead to a lot of improvement, and you get much faster at playing that scale. But after years of practice, you're very fast already, and it takes a lot of practice to get any faster. That's the power law of practice. And it has been found to apply to everything, from playing the piano, to typing, to playing a sport, to juggling. You improve a lot when you first start practicing a skill, and although you continue to improve with additional practice, the rate of improvement slows down over time. Okay, next I want to talk about what behavior looks like at different stages during skill acquisition. Paul Fitz and Mike Posner at the University of Michigan came up with a very influential theory, which proposes that we go through three major stages over the course of skill acquisition. The cognitive stage, the associative stage, and the autonomous stage. Let's walk through those stages in acquiring a skill. And let's start with the first stage, which is the cognitive stage. Now, as its name suggests, the cognitive stage is dominated by cognition, that is, by thinking, by explicit declarative knowledge. Let me give you a specific example from golf to try to illustrate what I mean. Suppose you've never played golf, and you go and you take a lesson. Well, you've never done it before, so the pro will probably start out by giving you some verbal instructions. They may say things like, get your feet parallel to your target line, or keep your back straight, and keep your left arm straight when you swing. Well, now you have a bunch of verbal instructions, which you will dutifully try to execute. In fact, you may try to memorize some of those verbal instructions, or even write them down. And you may rehearse those facts as you're trying to hit a golf ball. So you go to the driving range and you consciously and deliberately rehearse the verbal declarative knowledge that the pro told you. Get my feet parallel to the target line. Now, straighten my back and remember to keep my left arm straight as I swing. Now, one of the key characteristics of the cognitive stage is that it's cognitively demanding. That is, it requires all of your attention. So you can't really do other things when you're in the cognitive stage. All of your attention has to be focused on performing the task and rehearsing the facts that you've committed to memory. And so you wouldn't be able to hold a conversation while you're trying to juggle for the first few times. 
And notice that there's a big difference between knowing the declarative knowledge associated with the skill and being able to execute that skill. For example, you've probably heard the saying, those who can do and those who can't teach. Well, as a teacher myself, I obviously have to object to that statement, but it is true that you don't have to be a world-class tennis player to be a good tennis teacher. What you need is to be able to accurately diagnose flaws in the execution of a skill and to have access to explicit declarative knowledge that you can convey and that will help the student improve. Having the declarative knowledge is different from having the skill. You could have one and not the other. And conversely, some very skilled athletes or very skilled musicians who have the skill might not have the declarative knowledge. And so they might not be that good at coaching other people. So there's a very big difference between the declarative knowledge and the procedural skill. Now, let's distinguish the cognitive stage from the next stage, the so-called associative stage. Let's say you've been taking tennis lessons for a while and you're trying to improve your serve. So you go out to the court and you hit a bunch of serves. And as you practice, you begin to fine tune your serve by making changes that lead to better results. Maybe you were tossing the ball too far forward and that was leading you to hit your serves into the net. But as you practice, you gradually adjust and start tossing it a little more straight up and you get better results. You're in the associative stage of skill acquisition. You're associating tweaks in the skill with outcomes. You realize, well, if I toss it too far forward, I hit it into the net. And with additional practice, you start to figure out what tweaks work and what tweaks don't work. You're associating tweaks with results. Now, obviously for that to happen, you need to be getting feedback. And that feedback could come from another person, but it doesn't have to. You just need to be able to observe what works and what doesn't. If you were just hitting balls in the dark and you couldn't see whether it went into the service court or not, it's going to be not that helpful. You need to get the feedback to see whether it actually worked or not. So in the associative stage, we're tweaking the skill, associating it with different responses and hopefully improving. We're figuring out what works and what doesn't and using that feedback to slowly get rid of actions that lead to errors. Okay, so we've gone through the cognitive stage, which is very declarative and cognitive, where we're thinking a lot and maybe committing things to memory and rehearsing them while we try to perform the skill. And we really can't do other things at the same time. Then, in the associative stage, we're tweaking things, trying them out, associating them with the results, and figuring out what works for us. But ultimately, we want to get to the point where we can perform the skill really well without having to think about it at all. That's the autonomous stage of skill acquisition. So think of the skilled pianist who can play that D major scale effortlessly, fluidly, and really fast. It doesn't really require much attention at all. They can just execute that skill implicitly and automatically. Just like the skilled golfer who can hold a conversation while hitting golf balls at the range, 
or the skilled tennis player who can do the same while hitting serves. So, unlike the cognitive stage, which requires a lot of attention, the autonomous stage doesn't. Performing the skill is no longer nearly as cognitively demanding. In fact, many skilled athletes and musicians will tell you that verbalization is the enemy at this stage. When you get good at something, you want to just let it happen. If you think too much, you might actually screw up. So in the autonomous stage, you don't want to be talking to yourself so much. You know, see the ball, hit the ball. So there's less dependence on verbalization and declarative knowledge. Furthermore, declarative knowledge about the skill may actually become less available the more skilled you get. So maybe when you were taking lessons initially, you memorized all these things about the golf swing or the tennis serve, and you could even recite them from memory. But once the skill gets automated, you may actually forget some of the declarative knowledge that you used to rely on. For example, I still vividly remember trying to teach my kids how to ride a bike. Now, when I was a kid, I also learned how to ride a bike, and I'm sure I got all kinds of explicit instruction that helped me figure out how to do it. But to be perfectly honest, I don't remember anything at all about that experience. And I certainly don't remember any of the helpful declarative knowledge that was passed on to me at the time. And that ignorance became painfully obvious when I tried to teach my oldest daughter how to ride a bike. I basically had no idea what to say. I could demonstrate how to ride a bike, but that wasn't very helpful. About the best I could do was to say things like, okay, get on, now go. Well, suffice it to say that my daughter was less than thrilled with my instruction. The bottom line is that when you're in the autonomous stage, declarative knowledge may actually be less available than it was in earlier stages. What about feedback? Recall that getting feedback is crucial during the associative stage of skill acquisition. In that stage, it's important to observe what's happening so that you can figure out which tweaks work and which tweaks don't. Not so much during the autonomous stage. Musicians and athletes at this stage of skill acquisition would typically know what happened even if they weren't getting much feedback. For example, a skilled golfer could probably go to a driving range in the middle of the night, hit a ball, and tell you about the ball flight even if they couldn't see it. They can just feel whether the ball is going to slice to the right or hook to the left. They don't need the visual feedback to know what happened. Now, that feel depends on what's sometimes called proprioception. Proprioception refers to our ability to perceive the movement and location of our own body in space. So, for example, if I close my eyes and lift up my right arm, I can sense and even point to the location of my right hand even though my eyes are closed. Now, I can't hear where my hand is, can't smell where my hand is, but I can still sense my hand's location and I can point to it with my other hand. Well, that's proprioception, being able to sense the movement and location of my body parts. And skilled performance in the autonomous stage depends a lot on proprioception. All right, so we've talked about the three major stages of skill acquisition. First, is the cognitive stage, which is characterized by thinking 
and it depends a lot on explicit declarative knowledge, and it requires your full attention, so you can't really do other things at the same time. Second is the associative stage, during which you tweak your behavior and you figure out what works and what doesn't. And third is the autonomous stage, when you can just perform the skill without much thought and without much verbalization. Okay, now let's turn to a theory about how skill acquisition actually happens. So you've been practicing, you're moving from the cognitive to the associative stage and from the associative stage to the autonomous stage. How do those transitions take place? One way of framing this question is, how do you transform declarative knowledge, the book knowledge and the verbalized instructions about how to perform a skill, into a procedural skill? One of the most influential answers to this question was developed by Professor John Anderson at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Anderson proposed that the nature of our representation of procedural skills is very different from our representation of declarative knowledge. In particular, he argued that we represent procedural knowledge using what are sometimes called production rules. And the term production rule is just a fancy name for a very simple idea. It's simply an association between some conditions and some actions. You can think of it like an if-then kind of association. If the conditions are satisfied, then perform the action. And critically, this association is not explicit or conscious or declarative. Rather, the association is automatic unconscious and implicit. When those conditions are satisfied, this association just fires automatically and the actions associated with those conditions are automatically and immediately executed. You don't have to consciously decide to take those actions. That's what makes it implicit and procedural rather than declarative. Consider walking, for example. We all know how to walk, right? Well, when you walk, you're not usually thinking about it. Okay, well, I got my left foot down, now I got to move my right leg, okay, now I got it right. We just walk without thinking about it. It's an automatic set of associations. That's what production rules are, automatic associations. When you're walking and your weight is on your left foot, then you'll automatically start swinging the right foot over. And then you'll do the same with the left foot. It's not conscious, it's an implicit, unconscious procedural skill. So, the idea is that your ability to walk, or tie your shoe, or play the piano, are stored as a big set of these automatic production rules. The automatic associations between conditions and actions. And these production rules are stored in a procedural memory system, which is completely separate from the explicit declarative memory system. Now, according to Anderson, the key question is, how do we convert declarative knowledge into these production rules? So, suppose we read a book about how to hit a tennis serve. How do we convert that declarative knowledge into some automatic associations that are stored in procedural memory and that will fire automatically when we want to hit the ball? Anderson refers to this conversion process as knowledge compilation you are compiling your declarative knowledge and you're turning it into procedural knowledge. 
Now, for the computer scientists in the audience, compilation will be a very familiar idea that gets used all the time. And that's because computers are actually pretty stupid. They can only do what they're told to do. And you can't tell them in English. You have to tell them in a very basic machine language that's a real pain to use. So, computer scientists came up with high-level programming languages that are much easier for humans to use and understand than the machine language. These languages are a far cry from a natural language like English, but they're a lot closer than the machine language is. But the problem is that the computer doesn't understand the high-level language. So, you need to convert that high-level language into the low-level machine language that the computer can actually execute. And that's what a compiler does. It takes a high-level description of the program you want to run, and it transforms it into an executable form. That's compilation. And according to Anderson, that's what we're doing as we're learning a skill. We're taking a high-level declarative description of what we want to do, and we're converting it into a form that our motor system can actually execute. In our case, the high-level description is in English rather than a programming language, and the executable form is a set of production rules rather than a computer's machine code. But the basic idea is the same. So the question becomes, how do we transform explicit declarative knowledge into implicit production rules? How do we compile our knowledge? Anderson proposed that there are two major stages. The first is called proceduralization, and the second is called composition. First, consider proceduralization. Now, proceduralization involves taking one individual piece of declarative knowledge and converting that piece into a single production rule. One automatic if-then association between conditions and actions. For example, suppose that you're trying to teach a small kid how to tie their shoelaces. And you start by telling them what to do in English, like, first cross that right lace underneath the left lace, and then form a loop with that right lace and then wrap the left lace around the base of that loop and then push it through and out. Well, the first step is to turn those individual pieces of declarative knowledge into individual production rules. That's proceduralization. So consider the first part of the instruction. Cross the right lace underneath the left lace. What would the production rule corresponding to that instruction look like? Well, remember, a production rule is just an automatic association between a set of conditions and a set of actions. And the actions in this case correspond to a set of motor commands that will grab that right lace and slide it underneath the left lace. And conditions specify when those actions should be performed. So they would include things like having the goal of tying your shoes, looking at your shoes, and seeing that they're untied. Under those conditions, you should perform the action of crossing the right lace underneath the left. Now we proceduralize that first piece of declarative knowledge by creating an automatic association between those conditions and those actions. If I have the goal of tying my shoes, I'm looking at my shoes and I see that they're untied, then execute the motor commands to grab the right lace and slide it underneath the left lace. 
And that association is implicit, automatic, and procedural. It's not declarative anymore. You're not talking yourself through the process. Your hands are just doing it. So that's the first step. Then we would proceduralize each of the other pieces of declarative knowledge. So if the next instruction was to form the loop, then we would create an automatic production rule to perform that action. The conditions might specify that you're tying your shoes and you've already crossed the right lace under the left. And the actions would be motor commands to form the loop. And so on for each of the other steps. If I formed the loop, then wrap that lace around it. If I've wrapped the lace around it, then push it through. You create separate production rules corresponding to each piece of declarative knowledge. That's proceduralization, turning individual pieces of declarative knowledge into individual pieces of procedural knowledge. So what about composition, the second part of knowledge compilation? Well, composition involves combining separate production rules together into a single, more complicated production rule. In other words, grouping them together. When you get good at tying your shoes, you don't want to do it piece by piece. Rather, you perform the whole skill as an integrated, fluid set of motions. And that's what you get by combining all the separate production rules together into a single composite production rule. Once you've composed this master production rule for shoe tying, it will handle the whole job in one fell swoop. Okay, now we should have a handle on the basics of skill acquisition. First of all, we understand the basic stages that we go through, the cognitive stage, which depends on declarative knowledge and which demands our full attention, the associative stage, during which we make tweaks to the skill and figure out what works and what doesn't, and finally, the autonomous stage, when we can perform the skill fluently and automatically. And we also discussed a theory for how we progress through those stages, namely by compiling our declarative knowledge, which involves proceduralization and composition. Now, in a later lecture, we'll put some of this knowledge into practice and talk about ways to optimize your own skill learning. That is, to get better at learning skills. But before we do that, I want to devote a lecture to the acquisition of perhaps our most amazing skill, spoken language. Natural languages are probably the most complex human inventions around. They're based on a set of relatively arbitrary sounds, but those sounds can be combined into hundreds of thousands of words, and those words can then be combined in an infinite variety of ways to convey abstract ideas. And yet, despite the incredible complexity of language, all normal children learn to speak and understand it. How in the world do they do it? That's what we'll talk about in our next lecture. See you then.